Welcome back to the peripheral. As some of you may or may not know, I actually don't really drink or use recreational drugs anymore in my life. There is a variety of reasons, but the main one is going to be covered in tonight's episode. Having spent a lifetime watching my brother and sister drink and use drugs literally to death and feeling helpless and trying to get them to stop. I speak with Brandon about the death of his younger brother, Elliot. And during this episode, Brandon asks me a lot of questions about my sister's death because, well, as you can imagine, we went through a very similar experience. You're going to hear me share a lot more than you usually do, which makes the episode a little longer, but I'm sure that's not going to be a problem for any of you. It's a weird, bittersweet moment when somebody like Brandon and I can meet and talk and completely relate to each other. It's horribly refreshing. I'll just ask for your permission now if I could take a snippet of your song and use it at the end of the podcast. Oh, no, man, I'd love that. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to it and stuff. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I didn't want to be that because this isn't about that. But I mean, no. my music is so intertwined with dealing with the situation. And then after I found out that you would lost your sister, I was glad I sent it to you then. But I just didn't want it to come across. No. Hey, man, let me promote my shit to you. No you're not the type to come across that way so you're fine <laughs> i appreciate that i appreciate because it that's yeah. i'm always paranoid about it we're going to talk about a bunch of depressing shit that i've been through and whatnot and like i don't want this to come off like i'm look i'm a straight white dude man i don't want this to come off like i'm complaining about how hard my life has been and oh poor me or any of this stuff i've always grown up around people that have had it so much worse than me and i'm really grateful for everything I have. And I wanted to talk to you because first off, man, I, I looked it up. I, I don't really keep track of dates a lot in my head because after a certain amount of people you lose, you just stop remembering stuff like that. It's not that important. I realized it's been like nine years since my brother died and people just don't talk about him anymore, man. You know, like not even in like little stories, not even my family. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking about that. I told you I've been kicking around the idea of trying to tell a story in different places before, and I'd gotten pretty close, but it just didn't feel like the right time. And just, it, I don't know, something about lately, it just hit me. I just wanted to talk about them. And also it, that would serve two purposes of allowing me to just kind of selfishly talk about my brother, but also remind people that addicts are like, they all start as, we're all the same. We're all yeah. people, man. I think there's this perception that people with addiction are like, they're all like born in these horrible neighborhoods and poor and all this shit. There's all these stigmas. I think it's changing now because it's gotten so bad with opioids, but you know, I wanted to just add my story and my brother's story onto the pile of, look, these are just real people like yeah. that. It just, it can happen to any, it literally can happen to anybody. I've watched it happen to you name it. There's nobody who's above it. There's nothing wrong with trying to keep your brother's name out there, trying to keep his memories alive. There's nothing wrong with that. So it's not selfish. It's not a woe is me story. <laughs> it's definitely legit. I read a book the other day and the, the guy said, somebody said, oh, you're just feeling sorry for yourself. And his response was, why not? No one else is going to feel sorry for me. 
Yeah, man, that's good. And I was like, give yourself some grace. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Just based off of what I know about you, we're, it's actually creepy. We have a lot in common, man. And I know that we're both the kind of dudes that we don't want to sit around and pity ourselves or whatever. So you don't ever let yourself feel that that doesn't help. That just makes it worse. So how did you end up reaching out to me? Had you listened to the podcast before? Or yeah. You... Yeah. So okay. I paint houses during the day and I listen to a lot of podcasts and I listened to Gen Y and your personality sold me on that show to be perfectly fair. You guys are like super level-headed, logical I like you guys. It, this is actually, I'm about to pay you a compliment. It's huge, uh, but it's intended to be. I look at you guys in the same vein as when it comes to dealing with an issue. You guys seem to handle it like Matt Stone and Trey Parker do. Like where it's just, you guys always take the nice logical middle road, regardless mm -hmm. of what the situation is. And that made me a fan right away. I was like, oh, these are some real dudes. And then from that, I branched out to, I found the peripheral and I listened to some of the episodes of it. And I was like, if I'm going to talk about this is the place it has to be. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes people reach out and they've never listened. And I'm always curious. So that's really <laughs> yeah. why I asked. They <laughs> could have been random. Yeah, it could have been. But yeah. I want to hear about your brother. So like, where do you want me to start, man? Because I got a weird life. Yeah, just start at the beginning. How was your childhood growing up? How was he and yours relationship over the years? Wherever you think is natural. Okay. So I have, or I had two brothers. There's three of us in total. And then we're all about between three, three and a half years apart. My middle brother, Andy, and I grew up really tight because I think that's just the nature of it. We're coming into like middle and high school together, like those ages. So we, we bonded really tight. Plus we're very similar in a lot of ways. And Elliot, he was the youngest and he was the outlier in, in a couple of ways. See, we all have like dark hair and eyes. We're Irish and Danish. And the Irish part of my family, actually, our family name translates to dark hair and eyes, which is funny. <laughs> but Elliot was a redhead with freckles. Wow. And uh, yeah, he was like a deep recessive gene baby, but he got a bunch of shit as a kid because of that. We used to make fun of him all the time, but like, you're the UPS baby. But then once he, he hit the age of reason sometime around middle school, he's a super smart dude. And one of the funniest guys I think I've ever known from the time he was a little kid, man, he always had this ability to just not give a shit about what anyone in the, any situation was thinking if he lived kind of like by his own code and his own morals and like outside influences didn't ever really matter. It was weird to be the oldest brother and learn from my youngest brother. But I remember just even as a kid, like seeing him in situations where peer pressure would normally steer you in one way. And he was just like, nah, I don't give a shit about that. I'm just going to do what I do. And I was always like, damn, man, that's wow. You're like a little kid. That's a confidence I don't have yet. A level of maturity that some people never get. Oh yeah, dude, man. Absolutely. Yeah. So like once he hit that point, we got real tight. I mean, we didn't have a whole lot of money coming up. We had periods where things were really comfortable. And then we had periods where it was, my old man was just crushing it, doing whatever he had to do, working two, three jobs to, to make things work. But uh, I got the best parents in the world, man. They loved us all, supported us all. They still do. So this is another point that addicts are everybody because we had a good childhood, man. This didn't come from any like deep childhood trauma or any abuse or anything like that. We grew up playing hockey, lived mostly in Milwaukee and around the Midwest. We lived out in Fargo, North Dakota for a couple of years too. But yeah, we had a pretty good childhood, man. My parents did whatever they had to do to take care of us and support us.
so I guess like it's hard to think about how things happen now because the opioid thing is so now it's so well known, which is still weird for me, man. Is it, is that weird for you too? It is. Yeah. Like to hear people talk about it, like it's, oh yeah, matter of factly. It's a household this, term. Yeah. Yeah. Cause when half the reason I wanted to, after I found out about your sister, the reason I really want to talk to you is like, I really want to hear about your sister and the similarities that we have. That's one of the best ways to deal with stuff like this is because it's a very specific thing that most people try to sympathize, but you can't, man, unless you've been through it. Yeah. I'm the youngest in my family, and my older brother, Christopher, used drugs all of his life and was probably paranoid schizophrenic. He actually passed away in 2004. Shit. And then my sister, Megan, who... I guess had been using heroin for most of her life, but never really, I was pretty close with my sister because we were closer in age, but she was very secretive about her drug use. She was very secretive about what she was up to. And my mom tried to save her, move her across country, get her away from the bad elements, but she just ended up finding people wherever she was dude that's that's it that's how it goes man very similar i think it's because when you're in these like completely untenable situations you try all the logical shit up front and then when none of that works you just start trying literally anything you can think of and then eventually you get to the point where you realize there's nothing we can do if there is one lesson that i could teach younger me going through this when my brothers first started getting bad and it's just that dude you can't force anyone to do anything man you can't they have to make that choice all you can do is be supportive when they make that choice and help them then aside from that i'm sure you went through the same thing i beat myself up for years for things that i felt like i should have done for my brother that things i didn't try or that was a huge issue for me for a long time yeah. When you told me that it had been, you said two years since you lost your sister? Yeah, about two years. I was trying to remember what I was like at two years. And that was a really hard time because I don't know if you've experienced this, but everybody comes in and you have all these immediate aftermath, you have all the support. And then six months out, maybe you get some people kind of the real ones checking in here and there. And then after about a year, things go back to normal. And then I remember specifically, it was about two years was the first time I was like, oh, this fucking sucks worse now. Because at that point, it felt like everybody just went back to their lives and you're still, (laughs) you're missing a huge chunk of who you are, man. This person's not there anymore everyone else is the world just moving on. And like, logically, that's just how shit works. But I don't know, I had a harder time at that point dealing with things because it was like, that was the first time that feeling really settled in for me was that it was like, oh, this is just how it's going to be now. People are just going to go to work. And then at least for me, the fear that you're helping me alleviate a little bit here by talking about him was that it just, this is the beginning of the decay of him, of his memory and everything that is this person you cared about just slowly fading away and like diffusing into the atmosphere until it's just, you can't just gone. There was two things that kind of 
jog my memory here. One is right after my sister died, anytime there was something funny or a song or something that reminded me of her, I'd want to call her. Dude, yes. Oh, man. And then you can't. Yeah. <sighs> Dude, I sent you that link to my brother's Facebook page. And when I sent you that, I hadn't looked at that in forever. And I was scrolling through it and I found a message I'd left him that said exactly that. I just picked up my phone to text you this thing and I can't. Yeah, that's the real motherfucker, man. And I still feel that. I wish I could tell you that fades away, but it doesn't, man. There's certain things that he and I shared that like my middle brother and I don't. Obviously, we have different interests and stuff. And there's some, it's ironic. It, it's like the things that Elliot and I really had in common are all the things that are like now primary in my life. And he isn't here for it. Like he was the one who really supported he and I love listening to hip hop back in the day. Like when I was discovering it, of course, I'm the older brother. So I'm showing him all the mixtapes and all the stuff I, you know, cause I started from the beginning. I went back to stuff before my time to catch up, to make sure I, cause I just love it, man. It's been a huge part of me. And he and I always bonded over that, man. And he would just, to see me finally out there doing it, you know, I know he would just be loving it, man. And he ain't here. That song I sent you, I wrote for him. That's where it came from was, that was the beginning of it was I, when he died. So sorry, man, I'm a little scattered in all this and, and, you know, where I should start talking about him, but he and I were in, in bands for years together. I came up and Elliot was like born too late, 77 punk rocker. Yeah. Love that shit, dude. I mean, he had the multiple belts, one for fashion, one for function, cut tees, and he worshiped that whole scene. And then that carried into us going from playing in punk bands into my old man raised us on old country Western, like Merle Haggard, Johnny Cash, like the real classics, not this pop country garbage that exists yeah, now. It's country Western. You put the Western in and we know what you're talking about. Yes, dude. <laughs> yes. Yes. Not models being taught to sing pop songs yeah. about trucks. We did what apparently a lot of, I came to find out as, as we got older, what a lot of punk rock guys did was you did the punk shit when you were younger. And then as you got older, you kind of went back to your roots and then you ended up in playing like an alt country folk. So that's what we did. My yeah. brother and I, we started a band that was like a gritty kind of folk music, sort of like Tim Barry, or I don't know, just, I could list off a bunch of stuff of people, <laughs> only a very handful of people, I think would probably know what I'm talking about, but we did that for years. I oh, think of answer. Hank Williams, the third ass Jack band. Almost, Dude, but it's probably yes. Not. <laughs> in vibe. Yes. In vibe. Yeah. That's what we did. Yeah. So we were in bands together for years, man. And then we, my brother, like, so he had an esophagus problem. We're both tall, skinny guys. And when I was younger, I had what are called like blebs on your lungs or like little blisters. It's like a weird genetic thing that can happen to usually males between the ages of, I think like 18 and 24. If you grow really tall, really quick, it's something that can happen and it can cause your lung to collapse. And mine did when I was playing hockey and it was this whole thing. But anyway, he had one of those like on his esophagus that ruptured at one point, but it took the doctors like forever to figure out what was going on with him. He was going into specialists and getting endoscopies and all this stuff done. And I mean, it was causing him a lot of pain because air was leaking out of his esophagus and getting trapped like in his chest cavity. Wow. And so he was trying to like describe this pain he was in and nobody could really figure it out. And so this was like in the early 2000s before 
anybody was even paying attention to opiate prescriptions or any of that shit. It was just wild west. So he was being prescribed, of course, the same, it started the same way it does with all these cases you hear about now. It started with him just being on Vicodin and then got upgraded and upgraded. And then he started buying pills on the street because it was cheaper. That was back when you could find 30s and 90s and stuff on the street that you were paying less than a dollar a milligram and because nobody knew about that shit back then. And like, I've done stunt work and stuff for years. And at that point, I was actually right when all this was starting to happen. I was home. I used to go out and perform for probably eight months out of the year. And then when I'd get home, I'd stay there for a few months until my season started again. And I was home. And so I had just screwed my back up. I did horse stunts. And I think this was right after I'd gotten dragged one time and I'd torn some ligaments in my spine. And so I <laughs> dude, I have a weird life. So I was on Viking at the time. And so he and I both had these afflictions where we were just, we were young and like we had these problems and no one knew about painkillers. So we weren't afraid of any of this. He was prescribed stuff. And then we'd recreationally pick up stuff on the street here and there. But it was always like what I just said, recreational. It was never None of it felt like we needed it. It didn't feel like it was a real big issue. And then, so this kind of went on this way for a while where my brother was there. This was right at the beginning. They were, they hadn't quite diagnosed his problem yet. And he was just on painkillers and I was on painkillers and we're getting them on the street. And because it was recreational and we were still keeping our shit together, my parents had no idea what was going on. My mom likes to think that she was wise to stuff in the early days, but she wasn't. And I remember one morning, man, my brother, Ellie, and I were downstairs watching TV in the family room and my mom came downstairs and my parents are both really science minded people. They've gotten more spiritual as they've gotten older, which is pretty cool. But at the time they were not spiritual at all, or they just believe when you die, you rot in the ground. That's it. My mom came downstairs and she sits down and she was like, she looked real serious and we're like, what's going on? And she said, I just had a dream about your grandpa, her dad, which I was really close with as a kid. That was like my first experience with losing someone was losing my grandpa at a really early age. He was like in his fifties. I think I, I was maybe like seven or something when he died, but he and I were really close. So she said, I had this dream about your grandpa last night. And she's, I don't know what it's about, but he just said, Pam, you got to tell them boys to stop messing with them pills. Wow. And I like froze dude i assure you man she had no idea what the fuck was going on and i hadn't even paid attention that much because like i said it was recreational we weren't even going hard yet this was like the early days yeah let's get some here and there and she's like i don't know what that means or what it's supposed to mean but she's like i just feel like i have to tell you guys that you know and then she just blew it off like it was a stupid dream and that fucked me up man why would she come down and say this out of the blue? That's dude, yeah. <laughs> especially I didn't have that mom who was like the, okay, let me, you know, the spiritual mom who's, that was the kind of mom I had the typical like hippie mom who's, oh, they're telling me that, you know, I would have just disregarded it. But she was this lady who never talked about any of that shit. She thought dreams were just regurgitations of thoughts and stuff you have during the day and your brain mixes it up and whatever it is. Yeah. And that was the point where my brother and I split roads. I stopped. I still had a prescription for Vicodin and I called my doctor and I said, I don't want any more refills. 
that scared the shit out of me, man. You heeded that warning, whereas Elliot was it's just whatever. <laughs> yeah, he just was like, okay. And, and I don't know whether he didn't believe her because it wasn't the addiction talking yet. I know that much because I honestly don't believe either one of us had a physical addiction yet. It was just like in that play around, you know, get maybe you got some pills this week, maybe you didn't for a couple of weeks, whatever. And you already said his personality is I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to let the outside world influence me. You're absolutely right, dude. You're absolutely yeah. right. I'm sure that was a big part of it because he just went, eh. time moves forward. And like, he's still hanging around in that he was being prescribed stuff. And then he would supplement it here and there. And then he started getting prescribed because we're all really like, my family has mental health issues going back. We all have anxiety and depression and before all this shit started happening. Yeah. So he started getting prescribed Xanax and we'll talk about this as we, this goes forward. But like I, to this day, man, I don't know if anybody in your family messed with any of that, but I think that was the bigger problem than dope. You know, what's weird is everyone in my family or everyone, meaning my sister and my brother were prescribed Xanax and I'm sure that they abused it. Whereas mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe it's my lack of that screw it personality. I'm going to do what I want, but every now and then I'll take a Xanax, like maybe a couple times a month when I'm having a really bad day. And it's the only thing that like helps me, right. but I don't take it daily. I don't take it even probably weekly. And it has nothing to do with me fearing this addiction or fearing what happened to my brother or sister. I just, I'm just like, I just will take it as needed. Dude, and, you're doing it right. Yeah. And somehow I'm blessed or whatever you want to call it, where I don't feel the need to take it more and more or recreationally or whatever. Yeah. The feeling is in what you're chasing. You're yeah. using it for its literal intended purpose. And that's what it's supposed to be for. Like I'm not, I'm in no way shaming anybody who takes Xanax yeah. because it is, I had a doctor describe it to me once as, cause I have asthma. They said, this is an anxiety rescue inhaler. Yeah. Think of it like that. That's it's what it's for. You're having a panic attack. You take one, you ride it out, but this isn't something that you need to be popping all day, every day. That's not what it's for. There are drugs you can be on that are like, I'm on SSRIs and other things like that. You can be on that help lower your anxiety that you take all the time. But Xanax is not one of those you're supposed yeah. to just be firing down. Yeah. And I don't have anxiety. I just have really bad days where I get angry. Things are just spiraling. And like you said, it's an inhaler. I call it the Johnny on the spot for yes. just shutting down those emotions. But as we're saying these things, it's really obvious how somebody with anxiety or somebody who has multiple bad days can start taking it all the time and just- Oh, dude. It, so it actually happened to me. Right around this time, I went back out to do some acting work out East and I was having a hard time with depression. I was misdiagnosed as just being like really anxious. And so they gave me clonazepam, which is in the benzo family, same stuff. And from Jumpman, from the first time I took one of those pills, I hated the feeling. I hated it, but it did help. It did numb me out. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is the depression medic. Because this is, like I said, my early days. I didn't know what benzos were. I didn't know anything about any of this shit. And so I would just thought I was this is what I take, man. I feel this despair, this void. Oh, okay. It feels a little bit less if I take this. And so I just, I started taking this shit and dude, it changed me. It changed my brain. It changed. Like I became this 
angry dude it destroys your short-term memory i couldn't remember my ex-girlfriend we used to go there was a video store man god damn it fucking video stores was it blockbuster or hollywood <laughs> dude it was a family video oh it was, those, yeah yeah it was, this is a midwest family video and don't get me wrong this was still hanging on way past the days where there should have been a video store but yeah. it was in a neighborhood where it could still get by was it um, next to a chuck e cheese <laughs> <laughs> dude, i think they're legally required to be I remember we would go to a video store, dude, and I'd be like, what about this? And she'd look at me and go, are you serious? And I'm like, what? She's, we watched it last night. Yeah, that's That was literally what it did to my memory. And luckily I got to a point where my mom, I was home at one point and my mom just said, what is going on with you? You're, you're on this because she's a therapist, but at the time I wasn't really telling her because she's not my therapist. So she, she didn't know what was going on. But she knew I was obviously prescribed something and she had a pretty good idea of what was going on. And she was like, you're not you. And I was like, okay. And I went and did the very dangerous thing, which is flush all of the remaining pills I had and just went cold turkey, which you do not want to do on benzos at all. Anyone listening to this, if you're taking benzos and you're taking too much, do not quit cold turkey. You want to step down. You can literally, I think, have heart attacks and shit from that. I know alcohol, you can definitely die if you just quit drinking and you're a full-blown alcoholic, but I didn't know that about benzos. I didn't. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Yeah, Benzos are a specific... I didn't know that initially either. Obviously at the time, I definitely didn't know that. I think that even at my worst, I still didn't have an addiction that was, because I even, I struggle to call it an addiction because I fucking hated it the whole time, man. I just yeah. was like trying to kill this pain with the one thing they gave me. Yeah. And it just, because the nature of the drug allowed me to just separated me from myself, I couldn't see what was happening. And that's why I say to this day, that's the more damaging drug that my brother was on than the dope because the dope, yeah, he's going to fall out. He's going to do all the shit dope fiends do. But like when you catch him in those lucid moments, you could get through because it didn't destroy their mind. It just destroyed their body. Yeah. And it's always interesting to me because most people, when they think of a drug addict, when they think of whatever horrible terminology they want to use like junkie or strung out or whatever but yeah. most people when they started it was maybe it was just recreational maybe it was just i want to party when high school or college and then they get hooked and they didn't even see it coming or like you or a lot of people i know they hurt their back they break their neck something happens and they're prescribed these prescriptions totally legal prescriptions and they're never told, hey, you need to wean yourself off of this or we need to cut you off. And I think that doctors and people might be swinging the other way where they just don't prescribe pain pills anymore. But for a while, especially back in the 90s and 2000s and even 2010, no, it, there wasn't a lot of regulation or dictation to how you should take these pills and get yourself off of them. Yeah, it's wild, man. It's just crazy to me, the substances that People are just okay with giving you no pro tips on and just turning you loose with that can really do horrible shit to you, man. It's you're right. Then we might be swinging too far the other way now with they're not prescribing anything anymore, which is unfortunate because these drugs have a purpose, but yeah, the unchecked, a doctor gave it to you. Yeah. And like you're saying back in the nineties and the early two thousands, if a doctor said this will help you, you went, okay, that's yeah. it. Why would you second guess that? It's their one law they can't break. Yeah. Do no harm. So 
At a certain point, man, I don't know exactly how it happened with your sister. I imagine with everybody, it's a similar story of just a slide slowly where you just, you don't notice the changes. And then when it's horrible, you have no perspective anymore. Like I said, we were trying to play music and we had a band going that was doing fairly well. And we decided we had a lot of people that were pretty positive about our sound and enough to where we were like, all right, let's make a run at this. So at this point, Ellie was very functioning. I would classify at this point, he probably was addicted to both Xanax and opiates, but like he was still at the very high functioning, able to just keep it together 80% of the time. Yeah, We all had that same mindset of as long as everyone's getting the job done, we're not really policing each other about what we should be doing, which in hindsight is probably not the best move. A detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. We See, we mostly grew up in the Midwest. A lot of people don't know this, but a lot of areas in Milwaukee and Chicago, people know about Chicago, but a lot of areas in Milwaukee are pretty rough, man. There's a lot of gang activity, a lot of in areas that we grew up in too. We grew up in a, an area called Waukesha. People had never heard of it until that it's the same city where that nut job fucking drove a, a car through that Christmas parade. Oh uh, yeah. Remember hearing about that? Yeah. yeah. That was on main street, dude. I grew up bombing that street all the time, walking up and down there. Like that. it was really wild to see that shit happen somewhere that it's not a big area, man. It's a, it's a city, but it's like an offshoot of Milwaukee in the outskirts. And that anyway, that should, right. <laughs> but so we decided it was me and my brother, our buddy, Tyler, who was our bass player and my brother's girlfriend at the time, Lindsay. And we all decided, all right, we're going to make a go at this. Let's move out to the East coast where the cities are closer in proximity. So it's easier to put little tours together and stuff. And let's try to make this actually work. I had done some acting work and stuff out in Pennsylvania and 
Elliot actually, I don't want to go on a tangent, but Elliot, one of the many things that I respected about him coming up was he could be friends with anybody. The scariest dudes I've ever seen in my life. And Elliot was just boys with him because he knew how to talk to everybody. There was this one dude walking down the street one day. And dude, I want you to picture like any stereotype of a scary, like MS 13 gang member that you can picture in your head. Like I'm talking spider web face tats and the whole nine, like prison jacked, like the whole thing. He's walking his pit bull down the street. My brother's sitting on the porch and the dude jerked at the pit bull's collar. My brother didn't like that. And he stood up and he said, don't do that shit again. And my brother's this tall, skinny, redheaded dude. Yeah. And he looked at him like, are you serious? My brother said, you yank at that dog's collar again. I'm going to beat the shit out of you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he went over and had words with this guy. And then later on, they became friends. I mean, like, it was weird that my brother had, he stood up for his code and his code was, you don't hurt women, animals. Like he was, he was a good dude and he wouldn't let that shit happen. Anyway, sorry for that. No. I just wanted to paint the picture there of what kind of a dude he was. But anyway, so we grew up around gangs and shit like that. We grew up around seeing that shit. So when we were picking a spot on the East Coast to go move out to play music, we just arbitrarily picked somewhere in PA near where I had done some stuff. We weren't worried about looking at what the cities were going to be like or what's dangerous. We're like, dude, it's central PA. How bad could it be? Yeah. So we moved to Harrisburg and we end up in this neighborhood called Allison Hill which at the time we lived there was in like the top 10 highest murder rates, I think in the country. Yeah. It was dude. I've been in some bad neighborhoods. This was the worst neighborhood I've ever been in. And we were stuck, man. We just, we signed the lease from the slumlord that we did not know was a slumlord at the time. And so the four of us were out in the hood, man. And we're like, this is our spot. We got to be here until we can get out. So we set up and we just, we did the best we could and we just started playing shows around the area and but now we're in the hood so dope's right outside it's it went from because he was still um if i'm remembering this correctly at this point i don't think he had even made the jump to snorting dope yet i think he was still just crushing pills i think at this point that's when it shifted really fast because it was just it was right outside and it was cheap and then also you know i mean our life got real hard man this neighborhood every night was gunshots all night long your car gets broken into shit gets stolen you're always oh, yeah. facing setbacks yeah yeah dude it was you couldn't so this is the kind of neighborhood where you have to it's like living in a war zone dude you have to be conscious all the time i had to think about my posture and how i walked down the street yeah. because i knew i was being watched all the time and if i'm looking weak it's like that prison mentality man you're a target. And we were already, I hate to, for it to be like this, but we were the only white dudes in the neighborhood. So already we're being stared at as, are these guys going to be punks? Are they on the level? Yeah. And I credit my brother for surviving this neighborhood, man. He went out to buy dope one day. He told me he was going to buy weed, but I know he was going to buy dope. I don't know, maybe a month after we moved in and these dudes thought that they were going to roll him. He was this tall, goofy white kid. And I think three or four dudes tried to jump him and he handled him. And after that, like we had respect in the neighborhood. We had a dude who would watch our house for us when we left. We had people that would show up and hang out and give us stuff and make sure we were all right. And like the whole vibe changed after that. But it was still like, dude, it was such a terrible time. I haven't thought about this stuff in years. So if I'm scattered, I apologize. It's so there's a part of this in that song I sent you. 
guys stole so, some stuff and he, your brother grabbed a gun. Yeah. Yeah. Man, thank you for listening. Uh, it means uh, the fact that anyone listens to my music at all is baffling to me. The that fact that anyone that. listens to my podcast is baffling to me. Dude, but... <laughs> dude yeah, we got to be easier on ourselves. Yeah. We got to be easier on ourselves. So one night we'd been there, I think almost a year at this point, and it had just been fucking horrible, man. I had just watched my brother go deeper and deeper down just blowing Xanax like crazy and getting more and more detached. And those moments of lucidity where I could try to get through to him and try to do something were becoming fewer and fewer. And so we were all packed up to go back home for the holidays. It was like December 23rd. And we had a gig at a local club that treated us really well. And so I had all I had in my life at that point was like a handful of clothes and I had a PS4 and I don't even think I had a computer. I think that was pretty much it. And so I had all my stuff in my suitcase, my one suitcase ready to go because I was just so fucking ready to get out of there, man. I just, this had been hell watching my brother kill himself with drugs, wondering if my house is going to get shot up every night, listening to gunshots. There was one time I was coming back from a corner store and there was just a body covered up with a sheet in the street. And I was like, okay. And I expected cops to show up and dude, the paramedics came, they put the body in the ambulance and drove away. No, no investigation. No, no, nothing. It was wild, man. So I was so stressed and fried. I just couldn't wait to get out of there for a little bit. And we come home from this party, the show that we played and I opened the door and I knew I'd left my bag like near the front door to just grab it, put it in the van and get the fuck on the road. And it was gone. And I just immediately knew I knew somebody had broken and took our shit. And I was just defeated, dude. That was just like the last thing on top of a big pile of shit. And I just, I didn't get mad. I didn't yell. I didn't do anything. We had two chairs in our fucking, what you would call a family room. And I just sat down in one of them and just gave up, just sat there. And Elliot was walking around trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And I was like, somebody took our shit, man. And so they broke in. And he's like, no, no way. And I'm like, dude, my shit was right here. It's gone. I'm like, somebody took it. And at that point he realized we've been robbed. And he was like, what did they take? And I was like, man, they took all my shit and it's gone. I'm like, I don't even give a shit. And he just he got so fucking mad. And I was like, it's fine, man. I'm like, it's just stuff. I don't, I don't even care. And he lost his mind. He wasn't mad until he saw that they took my stuff. And he went upstairs and we had this gun that his girlfriend's dad had given us once they'd found out what kind of neighborhood we were living in. He went out in the street with the gun and he walked up and down the street at three in the morning and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. Which one of you motherfuckers did this? I'll kill each one of you one by one. In this neighborhood, dude, where they would, I, I don't know. I don't even know how somebody didn't just lean out and fire one at him just to shut him up. It was wild. And that was one of the worst times in my life. But now when I think back, like when I wrote that song and I, and I put that part in it, I realized that that was the kind of dude he was, man. That was his love. He never at any point in his life cared about himself. He only cared about his family and his friends. And he didn't have any skin in the game until he saw that they took my stuff. And then that set him off into a rage. I don't know, man. It's weird what living with an addict does to you and how you think about things and what you remember. Cause I mean, that, that was like my rock bottom, man, living in that, that was supposed to be, when we moved out in that direction, that was supposed to be like you had said, 
your mom took your sister away from it for a while. That was a, an effort. That was our first attempt at that was get distancing Elliot from shit. And we just, because I didn't, I used to beat myself up about this for years that I'm the older brother. I should have scouted known where we were going. And I put him right in it, man. I put him right in the heart of where I turbocharged his addiction. My parents, they tried everything they could do. I think we stayed home for a little bit after that trip. And then we went back to try to keep making it work. And man, I could talk to you for hours about different shows we did where it was she was just out of his mind on fucking Xanax and meltdowns and trying to get him to shows and him fighting with his girlfriend. It was fucking hell, man. Yeah, it's you would almost think it's bipolar because of the extreme manic and downs. Uh, yes. Yeah. I always thought my sister had bipolar until I realized, oh no, she's just on drugs. She's just yeah. self-medicating with drugs and it's amplifying everything she feels and does. Yeah. And it throws their brain chemistry so out of whack, man, that they're just not them. That's the only bit of peace that would carry me through this in the worst times was I was just like, I know my brother, man, and this isn't him. This is all the chemicals that have done this to his brain. These circular Xanax conversations I'm having with him over and over again, you know, where it's just, that's why to this day, man, I, if someone's on a hint of any of these drugs, I can sniff it out immediately yeah. because yeah. you learn that these mannerisms, they burn into your brain so well that you just know you can see it in someone's eyes immediately ah yeah. you're on benzos i can tell right now that kind of that blank stare or that yep. manic stare yeah and knowing that anything you're saying to them is just passing right through nothing it's just you're on like a 30 second reset i wanted to ask you i always tried to be supportive for my sister and i and it's really hard to be supportive loving and help them without enabling them to continue yeah. and I, I didn't know if you struggled with literally enabling your brother you moved him to this bad neighborhood technically we mm -hmm. could argue that was enabling his bad behavior but that was unintentional but were there other things that you struggled with where you're like was i helping or was i hurting yeah man and i still struggle with it for a long time i really i felt responsible for the whole thing because I was complicit in the early days when we were just recreationally getting pills on the street and shit. Like I was in on it. I was doing it too. Yeah. And so for a long time, I felt responsible for the very beginning. Yet it's difficult to walk that line of how do I support and how do I not enable? And first, especially back then, we had to learn what enabling even was. Like my mom was, she just retired. She was a therapist and she, so she had a better grasp on it than the rest of us, but still when it's your own kid, you don't, there's only so much you can try to do. And it's tough. It's tough to try to figure out what is support and what's enabling. And it was hard to find, like, I, I don't want to say that there is no exact answer. Maybe there is, and I just never found it, but we seesawed back and forth for years with it, where he came out East with me. And then we went back home for a little bit and then it was like each time was trying to figure out how I can be near him and foster the good things in his life. Like we really were trying to focus on the music. We were trying to focus on, okay, we're booking shows where we got to get in the studio. We're trying to keep him focused on that shit. 
how we shifted from, I'm sure in the early days, we were definitely enabling him. He, like every addict, hitting up my parents for money and whatever. They fell into that trap for a while before they got wise to it. Once we learned what the obvious ways to not enable him was, all we could really settle on was just staying in his orbit and trying to push in the good directions when the opportunity came along and then just trying to be his hands off with everything else, which is really fucking hard, man. Cause I would like, I'm watching, I'm literally forced to like watch my brother kill himself, but I couldn't in the moments. Like I, I tried, dude, I tried everything. I tried everything I could think of. I tried being an asshole. I tried being confrontational. I tried hiding his shit. I tried talking to his dealers, dude. I tried every method of external intervention that you can there at least that i could think of from for not being the act addict themselves what i could try to do to intervene because my parents i know they didn't intend to but when they sent me out east with them last time they gave me this kind of talk of it's up to you we've tried everything we can think of so hopefully this works and that was like enormous pressure on me man because i like i said i felt responsible from jump and i was running out of ideas dude it, it sounds I, I, like you you did way more than even I did with my sister because I didn't confront her dealers. I didn't confront her terrible boyfriends anymore. I yeah. I did the tough love and don't talk to her for a while. And then yeah. this is an example of me probably enabling her, but she got into a lot of legal trouble and she'd gone to jail for like a couple weeks and then she was supposed to go back. But in lieu of jail, she could get an ankle monitor and all these things, which cost money. And right. I offered to pay for it to keep her out of jail. Yeah. But when she's out of jail, she has access. When she's behind bars, typically you don't. Yeah, it's harder, especially for jail. It's harder to find in prison. You can find it, but not jail. Yeah. Did I you enable did, her? No, know? dude, I don't. I'm sure somebody can make that argument that you yeah. did. I don't think so, man. I think what you were doing was a right. You were supporting. If you were, then I'm also, I guess I'll, I'll be guilty of enabling for the rest of my life then too, if that's yeah. what that is, because you were doing what I was trying to do, man, which is you were, you had opportunities to invest in helping and the positive, trying to push the needle in the good direction. Like when you had that moment, that's what you did. And that's all you can do, man. So you cut her out for a bit too? Oh yeah. I And I'd cut my brother out for probably six or seven years and then he passed away. So it didn't hit me the way my sister's death right. hit me because she got into so much legal trouble and this ankle monitor wasn't to track her location. It was actually tracking to see if she was drinking alcohol or using drugs. It had like little sensors on it. Yeah, yeah. And she had to go in for drug testing once a week with her probation or parole officer. And she actually was clean for almost two years or over two years because she had to be. It was court ordered. Yeah. And during that time, I'm paying for her ankle monitor. During that time, I'm agreeing to go to court and be like the character witness for her saying she's really doing good, blah, blah, blah. But as soon as she got off probation, she used literally yeah. the same week she got off probation was no longer being tested. And she got a batch that was tainted. Yeah. The last two years of her life, I was way more involved trying to help her. And then it hurt so much more because of that hope you get. Dude, I'm so sorry, man. 
So I cut my brother out for a year after I'd sent him home. He bottomed out at a point where my our band, like we had gotten more people involved with it and it was becoming more serious. And we just, it, we all love him, but we couldn't do it anymore, man. It, we just, he wasn't, he was an incredibly talented singer and guitar player when he was, and actually he had an ability to be really fucked up and straighten up enough to still murder it on stage. But he got to a point where it just wasn't happening anymore. And my dad drove out and picked him up and then I didn't talk to him for a year after that. And then the year he died, I went back home for Christmas with my wife, Kristen. And so every Christmas I would, that would be my trip to go home and see the family. And he was doing really good, man. Just like you're, it's just, it's weird, man. It's very similar to your sister. He had been clean. What, what was that? There was a line from Seinfeld where it's, you don't knock over a Coke machine on the first shove. You got to get rocking back and forth. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that's, it's that way with any addiction, but opiates, especially you got to celebrate the clean times and then you can't punish them on the backslides. You just got to, okay, cool. Let's clean back up and give it another run. And he had been doing his clean periods were increasing in length. I was getting reports from my parents that he, I mean, he had a new girlfriend and his girlfriend had a kid with a previous relationship, but Elliot loved this little kid, man. And Elliot always wanted a kid. I knew, like, I knew if he had lived long enough, he would have had a family and shit. He was the one of us that wanted that. Yeah. His longest clean stretch, I think at the time, it was like well over six, eight months to the point where he was like looking good again. He was looking healthy. He had put some weight back on their skin color comes back there. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Just, this, everything is glowing. Yeah, No sores. No. Yeah. It, yeah. It was just like, holy shit. And of course it, it's so easy to a little bit of a change is a huge difference. So when you see him like, look like a human again, you're like, holy hell, man, this is great. So we went back for Christmas and my middle brother, Andy was basically running this sushi restaurant that was in the area. So my brother's like, Hey, come on out to the restaurant. I'll set up a time where it was a small place anyway. And it would basically, we could just bring the family out there and almost have the place to ourselves. And Elliot shows up late and it's clear he's fucked up. I honestly don't think it was dope. I think he was fucked up on benzos, but he was supposed to be off of everything at that point. And my mom was always the first one because she had been years and years over his shit like she'd found needles i mean you know, typical thing with a parent of an addict man she'd been dragged through hell and so her patience for him at this point was just gone and she immediately starts giving it to him yeah not like screaming or anything but just obviously pissed off at him and the thing about Elliot is, man and i think it's this way with anybody who really falls into a hard addiction i think there are people who tend to be people who are like a raw nerve in the world, man. They feel everything in a way that the rest of us don't. They feel it too acutely, too sharp. And they need something to take that edge off just to get by. Just because if I'm this way to a certain extent, I can walk into a room and, and I can know who's upset before I even talk to anybody. It's just, it's whatever it is. I don't know what it is, but it's just something that, that I have and other people in my family have are really empathetic people. And Elliot was cursed with the worst side of it. If he saw somebody that was hurting, he had to fix it. 
he had to fix it. He could not fix it. I've never met anyone like that before where he just, I mean, strangers, man. I mean, like I try to be kind and do what I can around him, but Elliot was like, if he felt somebody was hurting, he had to fix it. And so he had done so well, man, at this point. And my mom was, I think what hurt him the most was that he could tell she was just really disappointed. And she and him have a back and forth a little bit. And he really wasn't arguing that much. He was just, he was denying, of course, that he was fucked up, but they weren't like yelling. And then my mom basically just got to a point where she was like, all right, I'm done with this. And she's, I'm leaving. So she got up and my dad got up and my middle brother, Andy was all uncomfortable because there was this quasi scene that just happened in the restaurant that he's basically running. Like he thought he'd bring his family out to have a nice dinner. And here's brother who's a drug addict shows up and fights with his mom and and she storms out of the place and so she leaves and my dad leave and i lingered for a second elliot had his head down on the table like it reminded me like what you do in middle school to go to sleep just arms on the table head down and he was like tearing up and stuff and i was about to walk out and i stopped and i was like because this was when i came back this time was the first time since i cut him out for a year where i just couldn't deal with him anymore And I'd let him know, hey, man, I forgive you for all the dumb shit you did. I know that wasn't you. I just needed a break, bro. You're my brother. I love you. And so we were good. And then so he's sitting at this restaurant. He's got his head on the table. And I was about to leave. And I was just like, I just hugged him. And I said, man, I'm like, don't let this don't let this fuck anything up. You've been doing really good, man. This is a minor setback. I love you. Keep your fucking head up, man. You're going to be all right. And I gave him a hug and I left. And the best we can guess is much like your sister, although this was right before the fentanyl shit started working its way in. What we figure is he picked up on the way home and tried to bang the same amount that he did without the tolerance that he used to have. And it was just too much. And his girl got up in the middle of the night realizing he wasn't in bed and went out and found him in the family room or some shit. Yeah. But it was, that's why I'm so sorry, man, because like you, I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to have that hope that like after years of this hell, we're turning the corner and you know, it's unlikely, but you know that there are stories that end with people getting clean finally. Yeah. And you think it's right, right there, man. And then to have it happen at that moment is fucking brutal. I'm sorry you had to go through that, dude. I wouldn't wish that on fucking anybody. It's weird because it's made me very jaded when I do interact with other people that do have a drinking problem or a drug problem. Because I I just think my whole family's dead. Are you going to change? Why should I bother? Yeah. And... That's the wrong attitude to have, (laughs) but it's a self-protection instinct of, I don't want to hurt the way I did. So I'm going to push you away. But like you said, it's, they have to change on their own. You can only do so much, but they have to come to that realization. When you were talking earlier and you were like two years out, but I wanted to say, you know, and that right after this happens, First, you go into shock for, I don't know, days, week, month. And then it's called widow's brain, but 
it's that's probably a very sexist misogynist term now <laughs> but it's the grieving brain yeah. and for like the next year or two you're just spaced out yeah you, you walk into a room you don't know why you walked in there you're trying to talk to somebody it's almost like what how you were describing the benzos oh we already yeah. rented this movie but you're like not on drugs you're just grieving yep. and out of it yeah you're never there dude you're just a body you're just shambling around. My mom was like, it's wild now because both my parents, I'm so grateful that they're both in a really good spot now. My mom, of course, being a therapist, she understood the importance of doing the work she had to do. She got into therapy and whatever, but it took a long time, man. My mom probably spent at least, like you're saying, at least two years. I was really worried about her, man. Dude, she just, the light was gone. She just like, I mean, that was her baby, man. That was her, the last, Elliot was the little one. And when he was a little kid, he had such a strong bond with my mom. We used to bust his balls by calling him Mrs. Dennison. And he'd get all wound up about it because we knew he was just going to run and narc on whatever we were doing. Typical like brother shenanigans shit. But yeah, I didn't think she was going to come back, man. Because at this point, we'd lost some people in our life. That were, that's why I'm so grateful to talk to you, man. Somebody who's it sucks. I'm so sorry that we, yeah. that we have so much in common, dude, yeah. but it is comforting to talk to somebody who can understand how beaten down you can get, man, by just, okay, this person. Okay. And then this person and this person. And, yeah. and then you hit a point of, man, what am I going to do? Do I build up a callus or I just keep ripping the scab off? How do I do? How do I live? Should yeah. I feel this all the time? Am I selfish? If I don't, am I dishonoring their memory? If I don't, count their names in my head every night before I go to bed? And how much suffering do I have to do to feel like I'm keeping them alive? It's such a weird thing, man. Humans we're not built to deal with excessive amounts of trauma. trauma. People, the guys that go to war and all this stuff, it's, you know, they come back and all these vets are all fucked up PTSD. And it's like, yeah, dude, people, we're not built for that. We're not built to kill each other. We have to learn how to do this shit. When trauma happens to you, like, when you're just going about your life, I'm not saying in any way that it's harder than anybody else's type of trauma, but it's more confusing to deal with. If you're about to get into a fight, you're putting yourself in a mindset. I'm sure you've been in some scraps in your life. Like, you know, all right, this is about to happen. You harden yourself in certain ways and you do what you got to do to get through it. And then you can go back to being a person again. And when you're just blindsided by loss of shit just happening in your normal life. You, there was no prep, no nothing. You're just, you're exposed and suddenly you're hit by it. It's so much more confusing to deal with because you have to first come to terms with the fact that what just happened. I heard a quote years ago and I kind of put it in the song. I modified it a little bit. It was something along the lines of if somebody was talking about a friend who had killed themselves and said, I'm glad your suffering has come to an end but now it's time for our suffering to begin. And that's the truest shit I've ever heard, man. We're the ones who have to deal with it now. It's impossible. What do you do? Like I described it to you where I like to think about it like weights, like every person I've lost has a weight proportionate to their impact in my life. And you don't have a choice. You have those weights on your back. So you can either not get up or you can keep getting up. And when you keep getting up, whether you like it or not, you're going to keep building that muscle to get stronger, to carry that weight. I like that because whenever somebody would say, let yourself grieve, 
my initial reaction would be, what the fuck does that mean? Tell, like show me how, man. Yeah. And it wasn't their fault. They're trying to say something helpful. Right. I guess it's if you just go back to work and act like nothing happened, then you maybe you're not letting yourself grieve. But grieving is not a voluntary action. It's very no. involuntary. And I like the, you just keep getting up and you yeah. become stronger. I guess that's the best way to grieve and get over it. But there's no yeah. getting over it ever. The problem is I think a lot of people think that there's a solution, that there's an answer. There's not. The only way I was able to deal with it, and the reason that analogy made sense for me and has worked for me, because it makes it real simple for me. What are my choices? Get up or don't. And so if I get up, like, I don't have the answers. I don't know, like, beyond that, how to fix it. But I know that I got up again, and that's something. I remember my dad. So, okay. So when Elliot died... I was staying at my parents' house. Obviously, we get the call in early in the morning. I hear my mom scream from the bedroom that he did it. He finally fucking did it. And so the cops need someone to go and identify the body, obviously. My dad, the shit always falls on him. It always fell on him. Like He's the dude who, like, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, too, is in the blur of all this shit happening, like, I just forget. I'm like, it's obviously tough for parents, but, like, my dad, he had to go see him, man. He had to go look at his body laying on that table. And the days after that, my dad's the fucking toughest dude I've ever met in my life. If I can be a tenth of the man that he is, I'll be a success. We were sitting in the family room in that exact days you were just talking about. We're all just staring into the fucking middle distance. I mean, the fucking TV might not have even been on, man. Like we're that's how shit was for a while. We all just existed in that space. I'm sure you know exactly what it's like. And my dad had just came back from taking my brother's van to the scrapyard. And he had his plate and he took off the van. He had his plate in his hand. And we'd all just been sitting in the room in silence for a while. And he just said, I was walking back from dropping his van off at the junkyard. And it was the middle of fucking Wisconsin winter. And I was walking back and I was walking directly into the wind. And I thought, this is what our lives are now. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, man. It was like the most accurate and saddest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. That was all he said, you know, just moved right past it. But it was, that's it, man. But he did it. It's the point. Like he, that's all you can do, man. You just keep moving. Just keep getting up. If you have no other answers, you'll hear this a lot. If you have, if you suffer from depression or anything, you'll hear a lot in therapy. Therapists will tell you that on days where all you can do is get in the shower today, man, do that. That's the thing. Don't hold yourself responsible for all these things you feel like you should be doing, which is tough for me. I'm super ADD, man. So I'm constantly judging myself man, for all the things. Like right now, this whole time I've just been going through my head, like, man, I hope Justin cuts out all the parts of this where I sound like a fucking idiot. No, and did your ADHD get so much worse after this? Yeah. This whole thing has been a long process of me trying to figure out how to get my shit together, man, because I'm sure you can understand, like for a while, what you do is literally what i said of just getting up you just go like all right you just stay in motion you like brush shit off and you just keep going at least for me i settled into a pattern where it was like 
I knew I wasn't good. Like I knew I was, I needed help. I knew that I wasn't mentally well, but I was functioning. I was going to work. My wife didn't want to kill me. You know, I was at least enough of a human that like people in my life were being taken care of and things were going fine. And I always promised myself that like, if I ever got to a point where my life logistically leveled out enough that I would then go back and start trying to figure out how to fix my brain. And that's when I realized, like you just said, like all this stuff had, I was fighting so much harder than I needed to because all of my things were getting worse. My ADD was worse. My depression was worse. My anxiety was worse, but I just developed these ways of dealing with these things in the moment and then just, all right, okay, it's done. Move on. Just keep going. You know what I mean? You don't have time for this shit right now. Like just, okay. You had a panic attack in the bathroom. You just got done crying in this bathroom in a random fucking place. Get your shit together. All right, back out, get the fucking work. You got things to do. You know, I started talking to a therapist and yeah, then she helped me realize that I had developed all these really weird coping mechanisms and all these things for dealing with how all of my stuff had gotten worse. And so I had to almost double back and I had to almost learn what my problems were again to then go back and try to start unraveling them. I don't know if you've talked to a therapist or if you've done this, but I did this EMDR therapy. Have you heard of this stuff before? No. What is it? It's like, it has something to do with eye movement. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like when you talk about something traumatic, then you follow an object with your eyes. Yeah. There's two different ways that my therapist described that they can do it. They either do it. If you go in person, they can do it like with your eyes or what I done, because I was doing it remotely is you get these little toggles that like you hold in your palms and they vibrate alternately left and right. And if I just described it to you, it sounds like fucking pseudoscience. It sounds like stuff that you'd go like, oh, that sounds like bullshit, like some snake oil. But it's the latest thing in cognitive therapy because it's legitimate. It's something about going, because what you do is you go back and you go back into that, the moment that trauma happened or the thing that you're trying to work on. And the therapist will adjust the speed and the intensity of these vibrations going back and forth. And you just hang out in that feeling and in that moment. And something about this allows your brain to remove your emotions from that memory. And you can look at it like analytically. And then that's how you process any emotional trauma you have is to be able to take your emotions out of it, look at it from a third party perspective and go, oh, this is legitimate feeling. This is bullshit feeling and figure out how to parcel it together in a logical way. I don't know why that this specific method is effective at doing that, but it is, man. It helped me a bunch. I had a specific memory where my brother got jumped by this drunk guy outside of a restaurant. I was with him once and I didn't realize for a long time that you like, we were talking about responsibility before and feeling blame. This is, I think like I was trying to draw the line back to the very first moment that he had ever experienced opiates. And it was after he had gotten his face smashed by this drunk dude, that this guy broke the orbit around his eye and broke his oh. nose and all this shit. We, Sorry, we watch UFC and we know what an orbital bone breakage is. It's yes, terrible. dude. Yes. You can appreciate the damage. We're outside a restaurant, dude. We're kids. And it was, it was just a late night burger joint. We're outside and this like short flat top cop looking motherfucker comes up with his girlfriend. He's drunk as shit. He just starts making conversation with us. And my brother, Elliot was, he was a jovial talk to everybody kind of dude. So he starts riffing with this guy and they're chopping it up. Everything's really good. They're like, there was no hostility or anything. 
And like I told you, my brother was like a 77 punk, like yeah. in spirit. So like he's got his ripped up shirts on and his hair was probably Liberty spiked or something at the time. I don't even remember how this shifted, but at a certain point, cause we're all standing in like a semicircle, just bullshitting. And this guy like went over by my brother and was like making a joke about something and put his arm around him. And this guy's hammered. So like, none of us are looking at him as a threat. And then it, out of nowhere, he said something, but it was still like in a joking kind of way. And this guy like said to him like, oh, you know what I would do if my son left the house looking like you or something like that. And like Elliot had some retort, you know, busting his balls. And this guy had his arm around him and just pulled him in to a right hook. Like everything he had, dude, right in the face. So, I mean, you got a kid and my brother was 16 at the time and all of us just froze. We're like, what the fuck? Because we all, dude, it was literal. We're all laughing. And then my brother's on the ground. Like it was insane. And so we we're trying to process this. And he had punched him so hard that he had stumbled through. And so he turns around to like stomp him. Like my brother's flat out on his back. And I think he was out at the time. I think he, my brother, I think he was unconscious because he was just flat. And this dude turns around like he's going to stomp him. And I snap out of it in this moment. I jump over Elliot's body and I get between him. And I'm like trying to process what's going on. And he's looking like he's going to come at me. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you, dude? He's 16. You punched a 16 year old kid. And his girl grabs him. He's like, we got to go. We got to go to get him out of there. I had this moment where I'm about ready to tear this guy apart. And his girl grabs him and starts dragging him out. And then I hear Elliot come to behind me and makes the most guttural. It's like, dude, it's burned into my brain. The sound he made this like groan. And I look over and he rolls onto his stomach and blood just pours from his face. Like he, like a Gatorade bottles worth of blood just pours out of his mouth immediately. So I forgot about the dude and I picked up Elliot and I carry him into the restaurant. We call 911. I tried to send one of my friends out to get his license plate, but that dude was long gone. But for years, I blame myself for first off, not handling that dude. And then second off, not protecting him. And then third, introducing my brother to pain medicine in this roundabout way, because it was like, after that, two or three years after that, he developed his esophagus problem. And that was a memory that was like a catalyst for me in therapy for a bunch of different things, a bunch of different feelings of responsibility and shit that EMDR therapy really helped me to remove myself and look at it and be like, all right, if I would have fought that dude, what would that have done? Cause I would have killed him. So like that, great. Now, you know, I'm going to sit and my brother's still hurt. I know for sure we couldn't have prevented it because it was such a weird thing to go down. Yeah. It was totally out of the blue. And you know, people listening or I'm sitting here going, dude, it's not your fault. There's nothing you could have <laughs> done, but you would have never listened to me or anyone. You had no. to go through the therapy. You had to come to that realization yeah. on your own. Just like someone who has an addiction problem has to come to this realization on their own. It's such a helpless feeling when you want to help others and you can't. Yeah. In, in exactly what you just said, man. That's why that feeling was something I really needed to, and don't get me wrong. Like I, I'm in a much better place than I was now, but I'm still dealing with this shit. I'm still working on it. But what you just said is exactly why I feel that way, man, is because he, I'm trying to figure out how to explain this. It's it, that, that helpless feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is what I think it was that feeling that carried through everything after that, watching him kill himself with drugs. It was like, it was that same panic of watching someone fall off a cliff when you're out of arm's reach of grabbing them like that same feeling 
I think that's why this memory was such a jump off point for me for it, because it was that same feeling that carried through all the other shit. Something one of my therapists told me, because yes, I do see a therapist and a psychiatrist <laughs> and a lot of people. Good man, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, but uh, they always say, tell me about your mother or something about your childhood, some yep. kind of traumatic event. And yep. I don't always think it's something when you're five years old, but let's just say that you're five years old and you're dad runs over you with the car, but you live through it. Now you have this weird aversion to your father or a weird aversion to large objects or something. And then other things in your life happen that tie into that and you chain it all together. And that moment was your origin story of this trauma with your brother. And then everything from there, you chain together as yeah your fault. That's exactly it, man. You just keep riding that shitty ride yeah. <laughs> over and over again. Uh, yeah. You keep getting back into that same mindset. And so the therapy is to reframe that origin, that first time you felt this way. And if you can reframe that, then eventually the dominoes should fall. And all of those times you felt that feeling should work themselves out over time. I won't say it's just an immediate fix. Right. There's no immediate fix. Oh man, if there yeah. was. <laughs> yeah. No, you're exactly right, dude. Well, I imagine if you're in therapy, you've accepted responsibility that you're like, okay, I'm the one who has to fix this. Like no one's going to be able to just fix me from the outside. I have to do this. And if you have that mindset, then you have the analytical mindset of, okay, so when you come across something that makes sense, when you're able to remove yourself from a situation emotionally and look at it critically and go, okay, I really didn't have fault here because I played the what if game of what if I did this and that, whatever. And none of those scenarios really play out any better or any different, even though it's all futile anyway, because it's all in the past and you can't change anything. But once you have that realization of, oh shit. Okay. So logically I can let myself off the hook here. Then you can extrapolate that out to all these other things in your life where you're able to use that same, okay, wait a minute. Logically, what could I have done? Nothing. And then, so yeah, like you're saying that one thing allows you to start unraveling these layers of like responsibility and guilt that you feel because you realize that it is, I mean, the kind of messed up thing about this whole situation is Technically, it is as simple as you can't change someone. You just can't. They have to change themselves, regardless of what it is, whether it's addiction or mental illness or anything, anything that's affecting someone's life in a negative way. The only truth I've learned through all of this shit and through other friends I've tried to save too, that it just, you can't, as an external person, you can't do anything. All you can do is support them when they need help. But as far as making a change in their life, you're helpless, dude. It doesn't matter how close you think they are, family, friends, wife, kids, it doesn't matter. Like we all carry so much responsibility for thinking we could have done more to do things to affect somebody else's life in a way. And we spend so much time beating ourselves up over the stuff that, dude, you had no chance. There was no chance. You lost before you started. There's nothing you could do. Yeah, it's it. Set it's for failure. Yeah. It's sad. And you're set up for failure when you, and it's so, because this is the person that you love. This is the person you care for, mm -hmm. whether it's your child, your brother, your sister, you would do anything for them, but you can't do anything. Yep. Yeah. And Elliot and I even had conversations like that. 
in the moments where I was able to like catch him in times where he either couldn't find him or just was off of benzos enough that I could actually have conversations with him. We had those conversations plenty of times. Like I told you, man, I tried everything I could think of. So there were times I had conversations, you know, I was like, dude, do you, I'm like, I know that right now, maybe we'll have a chance of seeing it, but do you see what's happening right now? Do you see what this shit is doing to you and to all of us? I did everything. I, I tried to make him feel bad sometimes by pointing other shit out that just to see if I could get a reaction out of him, or I'd be like, man, we just lost this person and this person. And there was, we lost some really close family friends that like we had grown up with. And it was one of our best friends growing up. It was actually my middle brother, Andy's best friend. We grew up from diapers together and he had bipolar and depression. He hung himself in the basement and his mom found him. And his mom was the kindest human that I still reference in my own life to keep me on the right path. And this lady had the worst life ever. Her husband cheated on her and left her for some random girl he met on the internet. And then a little while after that, her son hung himself in the basement. And then in the year grieving after that, from finding her son in the basement, she got diagnosed with stage four breast cancer because it ran in her family and she wasn't going to checkups because she was mourning her son. And she lived, oh man, I want to say like another 10 years after that. And never, I never heard this lady complain about a single thing ever. We would go over and I painted her house and I'd mow her lawn for her and stuff. And because she was like an aunt or something to me, essentially. And there were times I could tell she was so sick, but she would want us to come over and play like rock band with her or something like that. And she'd walk out of the room for a minute and I'd be like, Carrie, if you don't want to do it. And she'd be like, nope, nope, nope. You guys, I'm, let's, I'm in. And that kind of strength, man. Like it was amazing. And we had lost her recently, you know, and like we're dealing with that shit. And I remember pointing out to Elliot, dude, how bad does it have to get that you're just going to keep piling this shit on top? You don't think we're dealing with enough. And now you're doing all this shit. You're running around like mom's finding needles in your fucking bedroom. And I tried that. That didn't work. I tried the love approach of, Hey man, like being kind and not calling them on it. Dude, I tried everything. I tried everything I could think of, but yeah, like we're saying, it's just, it's not, there's nothing you can do. When you're sick, referring to your brother or anyone that's struggling with this, when you're sick, you're not thinking straight. No. You can't logically analyze your life or your problems when you're you're clouded like that. And so yeah. you can sit here and say, you're hurting the family. You can tell him all the things, but he's not processing it correctly and people can't process it correctly. But when you do talk to them in those moments of clarity, those moments of sobriety. Sometimes you can get through, but I don't know how often that happens, but it's um, fleeting. Yeah. Unfortunately, at least there's no blanket rule of what's going to work and what's not. But if you're dealing with anything that is so heavily affecting their mind, you have these little windows where they come back and you try to get something in there, but that window is closing quick. And then whatever you got in is probably just gone immediately, which is the sad reality of it. The only times I remember like having, seeing the lights going on is when he had extended periods of being clean where his brain could recover enough yeah. from the substances. And then you could sit down and have conversations. Cause when he, that was actually like, like I told you, we had a handful of days when I came home that year for Christmas before he died. And it was like my little brother again, man. He was quick. He was back. He was making sense. He was holding up his responsibilities. It was like, 
he had his wit back and he was making yeah. jokes yeah dude and he was dude he was such a fucking cartoon character man he so i told you we lived mostly in waukesha he was so known in waukesha that everyone called him the Shawtown sheriff and so he got a fucking old-timey Shawtown sheriff badge tattooed on his chest where a badge would be and he would frequently have run-ins with the cops downtown and he'd be like what's going on here and then they would question him. he'd be like guys just step aside this is my jurisdiction he'd pull his shirt back and show him his badge <laughs> but he got away with that shit because he was like he was universally loved he was one of those dudes that like, I think he even talked his way out of a DUI once, which I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> He's the kind of dude who could sell a ketchup popsicle to a lady in white gloves, man. He was pure charisma. I relate a lot to your little brother because I could talk my way out of everything too. Yeah, man. I, yeah, I got a lot of pointers from him, dude. I got a lot, I learned how to, especially with girls, man. I was such an awkward dude. <laughs> and like Elliot was not, man, that dude. Nobody was off limits, man. I think any human being would be attracted to that guy when he was on his game. Also, I think, dude, there's like this, and you can sense like inherent goodness, no matter how fucked up someone is on the outside. Um, I think that most people, unless it's been beaten out of you or something, you have this ability to, it's like why animals make the most sense to me because there's no language or any of this. It's just vibes. It's all sense. And you know how animals can sense if you're a good person and they approach you. I feel like humans have that too with people. And Elliot had people just, it didn't matter. They People could get so mad at him, dude. And still, they just loved him, man. His wake we had at the House of Guinness's bar that we were at all the time. Dude, it was hundreds and hundreds of people packed into this thing. I've never seen this place more packed in my life. And they just kept filtering through the whole time. Yeah, he was loved by everybody. Because he, like I said, he had his code, man. He did what he felt was right all the time. There was one time he was in a bar in Waukesha and this girl was getting creeped on by this dude and the bartender Elliot knew really well and could tell that he was trying to figure out what to do about the situation, but his hands were tied. He was the bartender and Elliot went over and had a talk with the guy and the guy started getting handsy with him and Elliot took his ass outside and tossed him down a flight of stairs and the cops showed up and watched the security camera footage of my brother throwing this guy down the stairs, laughed about it and just left. That was the kind of, cause they like, they knew him and they, well, they he were was like, the sheriff. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly, dude. Yeah. It must've been, he was, it was his beat, dude. He was on that bar duty that night or whatever. Yeah. It's just, he was, he was such a good dude, man. And that's the hardest part, man. I'm sure you deal with it too. It's just all the stuff in life now that you're like, man, they'd love this. They would love this. My sister, was, she was so outgoing, sociable, you know, just she could talk to anyone. People loved her. She could rub shoulders with the elite, but she usually chose to hang out with the dregs of society. Like <laughs> um, all the good people, man. Absolutely. And she was funny as fuck. <laughs> and it, in those moments of clarity, it was nice. But those are the hardest times, really, sometimes, yep. you know. Dude, that's truth. Those were the hard, yeah. Like we were talking about where, here, can I ask you like a kind of a tough question? Absolutely. I'll tell you how, I'll be honest first, and then you can either agree whether or not you ever felt this or not. Yeah. It's totally up to you either way. Don't feel pressured. But when things got bad with my brother, when it was really bad, I remember there was one time I was working in a kitchen and my mom called me up and Elliot was AWOL. 
he had taken the car and was supposed to be back with it. And this is all typical addict shit. Yeah. He was gone with the car and no one could find him. And then they like found the car and they couldn't find him. And it was this whole, like, you know, I'm getting this and I'm, this is all happening back when he's back home and I'm out in PA. So I'm getting all these calls and stuff. I, there's nothing I can do about the situation. And by like the third call of, all right, he was spotted at this gas station and now we're going over here. And, and you know, that all, all those old stress stressors and anxiety, all that shit rise up every time you, a new crisis happens, which I'm yeah. sure you, you're very familiar with. Oh, here, this is the crisis of the day today. You know, here's my anxiety and my adrenaline going. And I remember all of that going and I had this thought. It was like, man, this would just be so much easier if he was just dead, if he just overdosed. This would be so much easier to deal with. Yeah, it's and, easy. It's easy for me to say yes. I've had I had that thought a hundred million times between yeah. my brother and my sister was right. Yeah, you've dealt with it twice. It's it doesn't come it does come from a place of frustration, but it absolutely also comes from a place of I don't want to see them suffer anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I don't want to see them hurting anymore. And if this is the rest of their life, it would be better if it was ended now. Yeah. The detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Because, like, I'm really glad I'm really glad that I'm not alone on that one. Because, I mean, it, it sounds I, cold. It sounds it heartless. Does. And cold. Yeah, because it, it fucked me up, too, for a while. Because I remember talking to my therapist about this once where... I remember when we got the phone call because I, I was sleeping, I was staying at my parents' house and I was in, this was the house that we had been in the longest. We moved around a lot when I was a kid and we never really stayed anywhere for too long, but eventually we landed in Waukesha and we were there for over 10 years. So that was, became like for the lack of anything else in my childhood home that year, when I went back to see him, I was staying in my old bedroom when there's this old Victorian house 
and my parents were in their bedroom was the opposite at the other end of the hall. And I heard my mom scream that he did it. He finally fucking did it. And I knew I woke up out of a cold sleep, me and my wife were in the room and I knew. And my first thought was of like relief, which I fucking beat myself up for years about. It immediately after that shifted to, oh, great. Now, what is this going to be like? And then, then the fucking terrible part started. But there was this like weightless moment in the exact time that I found out about it, where it was like one part of my brain went, the fight's over. There was this like, for like a second. And then it went into hearing my mom scream and then her coming down and having to sit on the stairs with my mom while she just sobbed uncontrollably while watching my dad hastily try to grab his coat to go identify his son's body. Then it all came rushing on me, but there was that second of like relief. And then I felt so guilty about that for so long, man. Cause I was like, what a piece of shit, dude. This is your brother, man. You fought all said and done. I told you, I don't, I'm not good with dates or times or anything, but if I'm just doing an estimate and it was probably over six years of this addiction roller coaster of starting from him getting into it to getting really bad to having brief moments of, okay, he's clean for now. And then it ended up with him doing really well. And then just having the one backslide moment be the mistake that got him. But it was fucking years of this, putting yourself in that being in war mindset like hardening, like I said, very similar to when I was living in the hood, man, you have to change everything about you to survive Yeah. and letting go of all of that felt really good at first. And then I realized I was just changing it out for different kinds of weight to carry. But yeah, I felt it fucked me up for a while, man. I felt like a monster for feeling any level of relief at my brother dying. I know why you felt that way. I felt that way when my brother died, I felt relief. And then I felt like a monster for it because I'd cut him out. But when my sister died, I did feel that relief. I did feel like a monster, but I'd already been through it once. And I was like, you're not a monster. This is, you wanted her to stop suffering. You wanted right. her to not be tortured anymore. You wanted the pain to stop for her. So it's not, you're not a monster for feeling that relief. I was able to let myself off that hook a lot quicker the second time trauma is a good teacher eh? yeah it's yeah. fucked up but it is <laughs> i'm not comparing our stories but when my sister died my mom had been upstairs and my sister lived downstairs in the basement mostly and she was up in my sister's business all the time always riding her and trying to get her to get a job or do this and then one day she's just i'm not going to talk to her I've had enough. I'm going to give her her space. And so my mom went about her day and then she hadn't heard from my sister down in the basement for four to five hours. And then she went down there to check on her and that's when she found her. Fuck, man. She had and, to find her too. Jesus. Yeah. And she tried to do CPR, but obviously my sister had passed hours before. So CPR and all that yeah. wasn't going to bring her back. But my mom called me and said, your sister's dead. Megan's dead. And I said, okay, I guess I'll see you soon. I'll come over. And my mom said, why? And I said, to be with you. And she goes, what are you going to do when you're here? 
and she hung up on me. Dude. Yeah. Yeah, fuck. And it's like my mom's like so just what are you gonna do? Like it, I mean she what's ain't happened, wrong. you know? And she ain't wrong. That's the that's what's fucked up about this whole yeah. thing, man. Fuck, I feel like such an asshole being so self-referential in this no, fucking dumb no, song this I wrote. Our, this but is our I, conversation. I wrote a song literally about what we're talking about. So of course, I guess it's logically going to come up. But yeah, I put a part in a verse that's exactly about that. You know, like I was talking about with you before, where there's this the time frame of people coming around and helping and whatever. But ultimately, what can they really do? What can anyone do for you? There's nothing. There's nothing, man. And it's that was something that I... I don't know why at this point, but when I lost Elliot, I'd already lost a significant amount of people. And you think I would have figured it out by then, but it took his death for me to be like, I clearly need help. And I thought that I needed external help, but it was like, what can anyone do? What can they really do? They can't do anything. man. I mean, obviously being around each other when you're all grieving, like it just helps to not be alone. Sometimes you need to be alone. Sometimes, you know, it all changed, but I understand the point of, I'm not saying you should, someone's in a bad situation, don't go to help them or whatever, but ultimately your mom's not wrong. What can you really do? Well, you're just both Now we're both sad in the same room. Cool. It's a fucked up truth, but it is a truth. And man, your poor mom after that shit, she'd already been through it once. And then she has to find her kid. Yeah. Man, I'm so sorry. That is just it's weird being an only child too. Normally you're in your sixties, seventies, eighties, when you lose your family members, you're not in your thirties and forties when. Yeah. And it's like more of a natural progression of shit. You know? yeah. Oh, they died of a heart attack in their seventies or whatever. It's the circle Colon of life cancer. type shit. Yeah. None of it's ever easy, but yeah, the stuff that's more natural, we have more of a framework established to help us deal with that shit. But when it's somebody out of the natural order, I think that's, I've heard people talk about that with parents losing kids. That's what fucks them up the most is it's just, it's not supposed to happen that way. And your kids are supposed to lose their parents, not the other way around. Exactly. Hey, I'm so sorry, dude. So holidays are just not a thing anymore. Hey, Uh, that's how I feel. I'm not trying to project onto you, but like, I mean, we go through the, we do the thing. And like, like I said, it's gotten better. My mom's gotten better over the years, but man. I don't know. I just didn't know if you felt the same way with that. My family, my extended family was never really close. So holidays were always a little rocky. And then after a few events, we tried to bring it back together more for each other. But I lost my sister. My grandmother died. And the grandmother kept the whole family coming together for holidays. And then yeah. I have a cousin who I would go with her to my uncle's house and my uncle died in surgery from a blood clot so it's now it's really just man everyone's just kind of like i fuck the holidays <laughs> it's just, yeah dude you just know. another day yeah <sighs> that's rough bro yeah i haven't been able to find a fix for that one you know like you just h- how old was your brother when he passed 26 maybe 25 25, 26. Yeah. Mid. Yeah. I don't remember exactly, but it was early to mid twenties. Yeah. Sorry to put you on the spot like that. I just, Oh no, no, it's all good, man. Yeah, no, he was, yeah, he was young. That's the other thing too, that it's, it's been weird. I'm sure you you've experienced this, like since you, you lost your brother, which I didn't know about that. Isn't it weird that they're time locked like they're that's them. And you get older and you keep looking at yourself in the mirror every day. And you're like, they're always that, that kid or whatever age they died at 
And the weird thing for me, because I was the youngest, is when my brother died, I think at 32, and then I became 32. Yeah. Oh, and then my sister dies, and then I outlive her and her age. And it was very a conscious, like, I just outlived my older brother and older sister. Yeah, man. You're coming up from the bottom. That's a whole different. Yeah. Being the young one, that's a whole different thing, man. Losing the ones above you. I imagine that's a whole other level to it. Yeah, it's weird. There's just different facets to it all. and But the the addiction, the mental illness, and the sibling thing, it's all the same. The same feelings. Yeah. There's just certain things, man, that no one else will get. Yeah. And it, it sucks that these are understandings and truths that we've come to because we've had to. But the only thing that I've found that's comforting about it is just finding someone else like you or somebody. That's why I make music at all, man, to be perfectly honest. So I stopped making music when Elliot died. I just couldn't do it anymore. Sold all my shit. Like I said, I was functioning, but I wasn't like doing well. And I didn't realize, because I, I grew up in a family where this is what music's always been a part of it. We're the family that we'd go home for the holidays and we do the normal thing. Everyone eat their food, and whatever. And then after the meal, you know, everyone's getting the drinks. Everybody would grab whatever it is you played and we'd all just start playing music. That was like a huge part of my life for a long time. And I didn't realize how important music was specifically yeah. to like my mental well-being. Like I thought because I'm like an art minded guy. So I'm always doing something, whether it's drawing or whatever, like I'm always doing something, but I, and I thought art was what I needed. Right. I thought that, Oh, as long as I have an artistic outlet, that's what I need therapeutically. But I didn't realize that music had to be the thing for me. And yeah. so when I was talking to a therapist, when I decided to finally try to get my shit together, she was like, why don't you just try writing again and just see, see how it goes. Don't put pressure on yourself. Just see if that's what you want to do. And like I said, I dude, I grew up, a hip-hop head man i got yeah. fuck man do you remember back in the day when being a white kid and liking hip-hop was not cool yeah <laughs> oh yeah way back in the day i listened to run dmc and stuff like yeah. that. yes then, good man but then when nwa and that whole thing came out yeah. i was ghetto you checked out then yeah i was all into that but it was about the time i checked out was when nwa went away and ice cube and snoop dogg and dre and all of them arose that was like the oh new yeah that was yeah, the new yeah. guard. And that was actually yeah, about man. the time. The I, rise of the West Coast. Yeah. That was the time I checked out because yeah. I, it wasn't that it was bad or anything. I just didn't have that angst anymore. I didn't have that. Oh, sure. Know. Yeah. You were like the struggle. I got nothing with this music anymore. Like this is different yeah. struggle or whatever. Yeah. I was obsessed, man. I, I started with that. I mean, I went back to the beginning. I went to high school in the nineties. So when I got into hip hop, I probably got into hip hop when I was like 13, 12, 13. And I, I don't remember who I discovered first, but then was like, all right, I got to Cause hip hop was still newish. So I was like, I got to go back to the beginning. So I went back to Grandmaster Flash and oh, yeah. a Sugar Hill Gang and all that shit. And then I worked my way through DMC and all of the classics. And then of course I got deep into it. Once a gangster rap became a thing and I'm a Wu-Tang purist. Yeah. At one point I had every Wu members, every side project in a big CD Bible, one of them big four square Johns, you know what I'm talking yeah. about? The, oh, like yeah. the, <laughs> I called it my Wu Bible. I, yeah, I was obsessed, man. I, but yeah, it was, I got called a wigger constantly. Oh, I had sodas yeah. thrown on me walking down the street. I got in a lot of fights. 
And it was all because I had black heroes, man. That took me. I'm still dealing with that, dude, which is weird in 2023 to feel like I never got into hip hop. I never thought I could make it because I never thought I was allowed because that's how I grew up. I grew up being told I don't belong in like hip hop's not for me. And so I did all these other musical things, which I love. And it's made me a more well-rounded musician being in all the punk bands and country bands and folk bands and stuff that I've been in over the years. But there was always like a degree of honesty removed from it for me. I'm only able to make music completely honestly. It's just the kind of person I am. I think it comes from living with an addict. I watched the web that my brother Elliot had to weave with all of his lies all the time, try to keep all these fucking balls in the air. And it just looks so exhausting that I was like, I'm just going to be straight up all the time. And if that pushes some people away, that's fine. But it's easier than me trying to remember what bullshit I've told this person. And so I can only make music from an honest perspective. And, but it never felt all the other genres I was in. It just, it felt like 90% honest. Like there was like this missing component. And then, so when I started, but you, but you grew up with the Beastie Boys too. That's yeah, I did. I <laughs> no. did, man. Um, but they, even when M came up, it was like that didn't change the tone for me though, because it was like I had all these people coming up to me then saying shit like, "Oh, you you like Eminem?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And they're like, "Yeah, he's fucking great." And I'm like, "Why is he great?" And they're like, "I don't even listen to hip hop, but he's good." And I'm like, "Okay, hold on a sec. If you don't even listen to hip hop, why do I give a shit what your opinion is?" And second off, I know why you're saying you like him. You like him because he's a white guy who's rapping. You don't know anything about what he happens to be the best of all time. You're right about that, but you're accidentally right. It, it's, yeah. <laughs> like personally, I don't know that much about Eminem. I listen to more Black Sheep and sure. uh, Tribe Called Quest and things like that. You are um, not wasting your time, my friend. You are yes. listening to gold. But I, I didn't listen to Eminem when he came out. People say he's one of the best. For whatever reason, I guess I just wasn't in that angsty phase anymore when mm -hmm. he came out. So I Oh yeah, and that yeah. was all he did then. Yeah. When yeah. he came out, it was all angst. Yeah. But yeah, so I just didn't think I was allowed for a long time, which again, I know like every time I say anything like this now to anybody, they're like, What? They don't get why I would ever feel that way. But I just started writing therapeutically and I wasn't intending to really do anything. I was just, I found like open source instrumentals and stuff. And I was like, I'll just use these to get writing and I'll just, I'll put them up on YouTube and my handful of friends or whatever can listen to it or not. I don't really give a shit. Randomly, a, a dude who I'm now good friends with, his hip hop name is DW Smith. He found my stuff on YouTube randomly and we started messaging back and forth and he offered to produce an EP for me. So that's the first one I have out is I wrote that record about my dealing with depression and shit, but this has all come out of nowhere. It just, I, I just, I started writing just to get my mind right. And it's kind of just jumped off, but I have no, I'm strange, man. I'm not trying to be famous. I'm not trying to make a shitload of money being like a big act. Like, I don't think enough people honestly think about what being famous would even be like, you know, I think they just want it and they don't um, yeah, spend they enough time. Let me tell you, they yeah. think they want it, but once you have it, it's not what anything you believed or thought it was. Yeah, man, because you got some notoriety, so you got a taste. I'm sure you know all yeah. about it. It's weird. It's really weird. God, I'm sure. If I go to any city and announce it, I can have 50 to 100 people show up to want to meet me. And that's odd because I was the loser in high school. <laughs> and yeah. I, And then you have this pressure of when someone meets you, you're like, 
what if I say the wrong thing to this fan, this listener, and then they hate me? Then you just don't want to say anything because you're like, you don't want to let this person down. And oh, is, we're uh... so similar mentally, dude. We're so similar, dude. <laughs> I feel you so hard on that. Oh. Yeah, it's oh. fame, and I'm not that famous. I would. When you talk about A-list celebrities, oh, sure. yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah, where they can't Mark, go anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Mark Marin made a joke. He goes, we're P-list celebrities for podcasts. <laughs> You're like only yeah, the people dude. that know, but no one else knows who the hell you are and they don't give a shit. <laughs> but I imagine it's got to be its own flavor too, though, because you're right. You're like P-famous, but like the fandom that does know you, I imagine is more rabid then oh, yeah. like you're probably dealing with the real diehards. So yeah, you might not have the big broad appeal of you got, you can't go to the supermarket without getting stopped. But like when you do get stopped, I bet you get stopped for a while. Yeah. And my advice to you or anyone doing any kind of content creation is do it because you love it. <laughs> Don't do yeah. it for fame or money. Do it because oh, you dude. like it. Because yeah. it's the only reason why I'm still doing it 10 plus years now is because sure. I like doing it. And it had nothing to do with me trying to become rich and famous or successful. I was happy with my corporate job that I had. Honestly, I, I know it's a drone cog in the wheel job, but I was fine doing that. I, sure. I had no problem with it. And now I don't have to do the corporate job and that's great. But some days there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of internet hate out there. And some oh, days sure, I, I, I could sure. just go back and do my corporate job if I wanted. I don't have to sit yeah. here and endure this, this online hatred all the time. Yeah. There's definitely the allure of, I mean, I, I don't have any major notoriety. I can't relate in that regard, but I've been an actor and performer for most of my life. And I can understand why people can settle into a job where you just go to work, you punch in, you punch out, you don't have to think about shit and you can just live your life. I get the appeal of that. I can understand why people can get comfortable. So I, I, yeah, <laughs> man, you're just like, okay, life's on autopilot now, man. I just roll with it. I'm not into it. I, I literally started writing again for therapy and the reason I'm going with it is because first off, it's something I've always wanted to do, man, my whole life. This is the most honest music I think I've ever made. And it, that last remaining 10% that was missing is, is here in this. I had to deal with issues of feeling like I waited too long because I didn't start making hip hop those 40, dude. Yeah. And, but we're like I the realized, same age. We're like the same age, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I think we are, dude. Yeah. yeah. When I was going back, listening to some of your older episodes and shit, and you, where you like talk a little bit about yourself, I'm like, fuck, I did that too. <laughs> we're pretty much in the same age range. But yeah, I started making this music now. It was like, first off, it was a hundred percent for me. And then it became, so when I wrote that song, I just started writing again and just started posting stuff on the internet. And I found that instrumental and this dude, shout out to Psycho Beats, by the way, who made that. And I reached out to him and was like, bro, do you mind if I use this? And he was like, it's fine. Yeah, go ahead. And I, I just had it because I liked how it sounded, but I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And I just finished writing another song and I just got this vibe like, I'm going to write to this right now. And I sat down and I wrote that song. I wrote, recorded, and put out a rough audio version because this was back before I knew anybody who could mix and master and all this stuff. This is me just putting stuff out for therapy. Yeah. Uh, I did it all in one day. At the time, I didn't know why. You're an artistic guy too. When whatever it is, whether you believe it's external or internal or whatever the gods are that push you to make something, when those voices are talking, you got to move. You're like, oh, now... The, the impulse can leave and come back. So I was like, I'm going to write this song. So I wrote it and it was fucking hard. And I was crying half the time I was writing it. And then I put it out. And then 
nobody had really noticed that I was making music at that point. And the day after I put that song out, I got a bunch of phone calls from friends and shit that had found it. And they were talking about what they liked about it and all this other stuff. And I was like, wow, shit, I'm, you know, thanks for it. listening. That's weird. I didn't even know you knew where to find. Because at the time, I had one YouTube channel, and just a couple things on it. Like it wasn't on any other platforms. I was like, I don't know how you found 20 it. 20 subscribers. Yeah. Yeah, dude. You know, not even at that. Oh, shit. I'm <laughs> five. I mean, not like I'm fucking swinging now, but I, I didn't even told. There were close family that didn't even know I was making music again. And then I get this call from a really close family friend. If he hears this, he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. He went through a lot of shit with my brother. He actually, when we sent my brother back the last time, which actually ended up that started him getting clean. This was like in the year leading up to me coming back home before he died. So when we sent him back from the East coast back and my dad came out to get him, he had stayed for several weeks at my buddy's house with him and his mom. And he was super fucking dope sick. He was a mess and losing his mind. And they fucking took care of him, man. And they cleaned him up and kept him in bed and kept him hydrated and all this shit until my dad could come. And then we put him in the car and sent him back home. And he'd been around for years. This friend of mine, he's, I consider him like a brother. I mean, he's been there through a lot of shit. When you go through stuff like that, I'm sure other people who have been through it with you, you look at them different than other friends of yours that no fault of theirs that we just weren't around during that time. There's some extra. So he calls me after I put this out and he said, man, I really needed that. Essentially, like I'm just paraphrase the conversation, but he basically told me he was in a rough spot in his life. His marriage he rushed into was not good. His wife is not a good person. He'd been drinking a whole lot and he had his gun and was in the basement sitting around yeah. And he was absentmindedly scrolling through his phone while trying to work up the nerve. And he saw that I'd posted the song that I wrote about Elliot and he just listened to it on repeat and yeah. didn't do anything. I don't know whether he was exaggerating the story to make me feel better about it or whether it's a hundred percent true. But after he told me that I was like, I don't give a shit what my music does after this. Yeah. Like the, my whole reason in putting any of this out and to this day, the only reason I, not every song I put out is about struggle and sad shit. It's just, <laughs> it's a way for me to process that some of a, a good chunk of it is. And the only reason I put this stuff out is because I know how much it's mattered to me when I've been in these positions where I feel like no one else, I know that other people go through shit, but you have these thoughts sometimes and you think no one's had that thought, but me. Like only a really fucked up person would think these thoughts or whatever. And when I've heard someone else in music say something along those lines and I go, oh shit, it's not just me. Not only do they feel the same way I feel, but they even phrased it in a way that I would phrase it. Okay. I'm not as crazy as I thought I was. So that's why I decided to put this stuff out at all, because I know my music stylistically is different. It's people are either going to like it or they're going to hate it or whatever. But I just want people that hear it to have, hopefully for every thousand people that go, eh, it's okay or whatever. Don't really check it out. If there's that one person that listened to a specific song and hear me talking about a specific way I'm feeling and they go, fuck, that's it. That's worth it for me to put out. If it resonates and helps one person. That's all that matters. That's it, man. And so for my friend to tell me that it helped him walk back from a very precarious spot, that was far exceeded. I mean, I was just hoping that 
something I wrote, which maybe helps someone have a little less shitty of a day. You can never write music with the hope that it's going to really have an impact. You can hope it does, but what are the odds? Mm -hmm. But that event just cemented it for me that I was like, dude, just keep putting it out and just be honest. And it'll find the people it needs to find. And in a weird way, it's led me to this conversation right now Mm -hmm. because it started me processing, dealing with all this shit. I've had a very (laughs) similar realization with my podcast, regardless of online negativity or whatever. Yeah. Fuck that by the way, man. But when I get that one email of somebody saying, Hey, I really appreciate when you said this, or I really appreciated that you covered this, or I thought I was the only one. I try to lock on to those comments, those emails and block out all the rest because that's who I made it for. Just like you make your music for that one person that you had an impact on. Dude, I'm, I can tell you, I'm one of those people, man. Hearing how, I wish I had a mind to be specific enough, but just listening to some Gen Y episodes and stuff and hearing how you approached certain topics, 100% was like, this is a good dude. Like, this is the guy I want to talk to about this yeah. shit. Because there's so many people, especially in the true crime space and shit, when they get into addiction talk or certain things it's either dismissive or some of them are outright victim blaming yeah or, yeah. yeah when yeah. it comes to people being like you're a fucking piece of shit junkie i'm like yeah. hold on and i'm right there with you and i guess the only pass i would give to somebody who they're a family member of this person or a sibling or whatever is maybe they're in that spot of just sure. pure frustration and just anger at that other person but still yeah uh, this is either gonna confirm fucked up thoughts that people were already having to be like yeah see they they fucking think it too or it's gonna put these thoughts in the people's heads that didn't have it in the beginning and it's there's just no but i get it i get it too like you're saying there after my buddy steve had hung himself i spent years being like ah, i'm not fucking friends with dead guys you know what i mean because i was mad at him because i told him so many times as a kid if you ever need anything i'll come from anywhere to get you whatever and he had tried a couple times he drove his car into a median once he took his mom's van just on the freeway smashed it into the middle of the median trying to kill himself and it didn't work and after that i was like i had many long talks with him where i'm like dude i don't give a shit how bad it is or where i am in the world if my phone rings and you say get here i'm on my way And I didn't get a phone call. And for years, I was so mad about it. I was like, you motherfucker. Your anger towards him and the words or thoughts you had are yours and probably should be kept private in a sense. You can say I was mad. You can say these things, but to record yourself or document it in the moment. Yeah, exactly. Because obviously later I grew up and was like, oh yeah, of course I was mad at the fact that my friend, but I was discounting all the reasons how he got there. He was bipolar. Who knows whether he was medicated. There's so many factors that went into him making one split second, terrible decision that he couldn't undo. And I was going to be mad at him. So yeah, of course it's ridiculous, but yeah, putting it out there for the whole world to hear that shit. Come on, man. Think. Yeah, it's uh, don't we have enough bad media influencing people to be terrible these days? We don't need any more of that. That's why I'm really grateful that you giving me this chance to talk, man, and to do just to do what you're doing, man. I'm a straight up fan, dude. We need more people like you out there doing what you're doing in the spaces that you're doing it. There's enough people out there that are trying to stir shit up, take hard line, black and white. Yeah, it, there's just there's too much hardlining, and there's not enough compassionate, logical rationality 
that's my problem is everyone looks at the world as this way or that way, black and white, very binary. And I always just think it's full of shades of gray. And I mean, I get that people are emotional and they feel a thing, but there's no like consideration. People just, they have an emotional impulse and then they just, they're out with it. And there needs to be more people like you and, and your homeboy Aaron out there that take the time to go, okay, yeah, this might've been my first impulse in this situation, but hold on, let's look at it. Is this a justified emotional response? And if it is, what does that mean? And how should I temper it? And what should I really say? As opposed to just, oh, that made me angry. So that thing's fucking stupid. <laughs> okay, great. What has that done to help anyone or anything? Like you say, you're living in a battlefield. Be the medic that helps, not the guy that's shooting. <laughs> that's so good, dude. That's so good. You can use yeah. it in a song if you want. <laughs> I'm going to steal it, bro. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm going to steal it. No, I love that, man. That's really good. It's hard to believe when you're grieving that there's anything left worth believing. With every calendar torn page, you don't age while I go gray decay and look way less appealing. I notice when I walk, my head is always down. I'm always breaking, but I'm never breaking ground. But I learned I can break without making a sound when a memory takes me way back to when you were around. The sound of your laugh, I can barely hear it. And it's rare to hear a story about you and not your spirit. I read so many how-tos on dealing. How do you choose which ruse is appealing and just believe in it? I know I feel what you felt, but in a lesser way. You dealt with dealers, we were dealing with it every day. I thought the healing was to let my feelings melt away. Now I'm dried out, so I stand outside and pray for rain. I've tried to write this, but my mind quits when the lines dip and the rhymes miss. Because if it hits at the right time, it's timeless. What if that's the only timeline where you might exist? Getting darker at night, your absence is breaking my back, but I'm walking aright. The fact that I'm talking feels like tightrope walking backwards, causing slack in the rope that I walk on, not making it tight. The thing you hear nobody say, I'll be there for you for about a week and then I'll go away. But it's like, okay, how long should they really stay? With infinite time, what the fuck can they even say? Tough luck, bud, buck up, you're gonna be okay? Can anything out there make this fucking go away? What's the price that I need to pay? How much flesh you gonna flay? Okay, okay, just say, I'll put it on the tray. that we went home right before christmas we were gonna hit the road but when we got back to the house after we played the show someone broke a window and took everything we own man no lying that shit was rough no money for heat in the winter it was pretty fucking tough but the thing that i remember is you never giving up you went and got the gun because they took your brother's stuff and that was you man you died for anyone you loved and know that i cried while writing every word above and come my time i know that we'll be meeting up blood is thick and love is not a thing i'm giving up i guess i'll see you till i see you again 
Checking sometime don't have to say when. I'm glad your suffering has come to an end, but ours is just beginning, my friend. So until then, Thank you, Brandon, for sharing your story. If anyone's interested, that song you just heard, it's called Lost. His project is called Hush. Uh, Brandon wrote it about his relationship with his brother. Go check him out on social media at Hip Hop Hush. Uh, he's on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Bandcamp, all the places. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, I have a hard time listening to that song and it not bring tears to my eyes. So thanks for listening.